You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where we'll be this morning, looking at the Ten Commandments again. And um, we will be in the Sixth Commandment yet again this morning. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21 is where I'll be reading. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Come at this time in the name of our Lord Jesus, asking you to strengthen us for the preaching and hearing of your word, for the intercession of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Save sinners and build up your church this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the Ten Commandments is the abiding law of nature, the constitution of reality. It is still and forever in effect because it reflects the very nature of God himself. This is the third week in the Sixth Commandment, and the Sixth Commandment is you shall not kill. We spent two weeks already in this commandment. I think I'll spend more in this commandment than I have any other up until this point. I still, after today, have a few things that I want to talk about as it pertains to the Sixth Commandment. The key to interpreting, or a key, there's multiple interpretive principles when it comes to the law of God, but one of the keys to interpreting the law of God, is that when the law prohibits evil, it demands the opposite good. The prohibition of evil is the demand of the opposite good. And so the prohibiting of killing in the Sixth Commandment doesn't just prohibit killing, but it demands the preservation of human life. So it's not, the the principle that's coming out of this commandment is not just you shall not kill, but implicit within that commandment is the principle that you shall do what you can to preserve human life. When the commandment prohibits evil, it demands the opposite good. You shall not kill means, the principle is, is that you shall do what you can to 
preserve and protect human life. Last week, we talked about the aspects of capital punishment and just war. And those are tools that God's given us to preserve human life. So the commandment, the actual sixth commandment, demands capital punishment, especially in instances of first-degree murder. And the sixth commandment demands that there be times when the government intervene and carry out war. So I'm, what I'm not doing, I said this last week, I'm not saying, well, we can set aside the Sixth Commandment for these things, no. I'm saying the Sixth Commandment actually demands these things because this is how Scripture applies them. If the commandment demands that we protect and preserve human life and that we put dignity, attach dignity to human life, then it demands the execution of those who carry out first-degree murder and it demands that the government engage in, in just war. And so I articulated what has become known as a theological category as just war theory last week. And I said you should love your neighbors by advocating for capital punishment and you should love your neighbors by demanding that the government engage in war when it is necessary and only when it is necessary to protect human life. And in that, I delineated several principles derived from Scripture that should be used to come to those conclusions as to when a war is justified and how such a war should be carried out. Matthew Henry said, I quoted this at the beginning of my sermon last week, the Sixth Commandment does not forbid killing in lawful war or in our own necessary defense, nor the magistrates putting offenders to death, for those things tend to the preserving of life. And this is what we want. And so, by necessity, the Sixth Commandment demands such things because it demands the preserving of human life. Now, as I've talked about this and I've gone through the Ten Commandments, I've, I've said again and again, what you need to do is, is when you feel the conviction of God's Holy Spirit, you go immediately to the cross because Jesus died to save sinners and you should be leaving church um, feeling grateful for the mercy of Christ towards sinners more than you should be leaving church feeling shame for your sin. So you need to go to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian today, you need to run to the Lord Jesus and be saved. However, last Sunday's sermon and this Sunday's sermon are less searching and, and less immediately practical than other sermons on the Ten Commandments have been. So these are less searching. They don't search your heart as much because we're dealing in some senses with abstract theory. But the, the idea is, is that you should be leaving church with some thoughts in your head, and I'm trying to convince you to change your mind on some things so that your thinking can come be more in line with God's thinking on an issue. And so these last two sermons have not been as searching, perhaps, as some other ones in your heart, needling away at your heart, but they are sermons where the application isn't necessarily do this right now, but the application is change your thinking on this right now. And that's my objective. And what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to build on the sermon of last week. And so the sermon of last week dealt with the government's use of violence and even violence that kills, lethal violence, to preserve human life and then by the means of the death penalty and engaging in war. Well, this week I'm going to take what I preached on last week and build on it, and then I'm going to talk about the necessity at times of civil war. That's what I'm talking about this week. And I still have a lot more that I have to talk about as it pertains to the Sixth Commandment next week and maybe the week after. But the at times necessity of civil war now, why, would, why is this relevant? Some of you are like, why is he talking about this? What a silly thing to talk about in these peaceful, wonderful times in which we live. Other than maybe he wants to get on some type of government watch list or something like that. But in all reality, I think it's very relevant, and I'll explain why. In 2019, I preached on a sermon called Peak Canadian Decadence and the Wrath of God, 
and I commented, it was from Judges chapter 20, and I commented on the high levels of depravity in high places in our country. That our government and people in power and the ruling elite are engaged in, in terrible forms of depravity that are now coming out into the open. And if we see these things in public, you, God only knows what's going on in private. You can assume that people are on their best behavior in public. So if that's how they act in public, what's going on in private? And I said, based on the typology that we're given in Judges 19, without repentance, such levels of depravity will lead to the disintegration of society, likely with violence in the streets and civil war. I really do believe that, and even more so I believe that today than I did then, 2019. Now, there are a few here among us, maybe, who think this could never happen here. Um, of course, this is such a peaceful and lovely place, but this country is increasingly becoming rotten and violent. And not only that, are the people increasingly becoming rotten and violent, but we're importing violence from the third world into this country. And not only that, but you're seeing it pour into the streets now at this point, and we're seeing the dark realities of human nature pour into our streets and so you, you would have even, I think this is relevant, even this week. Because over the last week, if you paid attention to the news, you would have seen these, they call it, I think it the One Million March in all these cities across Canada where people were protesting the depravity of our ruling elites and especially indoctrinating the little children with such depravity. And you saw, literally, even in the streets of Kitchener, lines being drawn at the protest in Kitchener. On one side, you have one group of people, and on the other side, you have another group of people, and you're having to have now police separate the two, and at times, police take a side between the two. And these are things that you know, might have said they were flashpoints years ago, but this was in pretty well every major Canadian city this past week. And so, and I think it's serious because on both sides of the lines, you have people who are claiming to possess the moral high ground and are giving every indication that they think they have the moral high ground. So on one side of the line, you have a group that tells us they have the moral high ground. And on the other side of the line, you have a group that tells us you have a moral high ground. So these are irreconcilable differences. You have one group that believes they are absolutely right lining up, and then you have another group that believes they are absolutely right lining up. One group says that they are tolerant, they are accepting, they are diverse, they are inclusive, all the buzzwords, they are the morally superior ones. And then on the other side, you have a group of people that I think rightfully are claiming that the total tolerance crowd are composed of groomers, pedophiles, thieves, tyrants, and murderers. And so you have two groups of people that are saying, believe they themselves have the moral high ground. And these are irreconcilable differences. You can't, it's not like you can meet in the middle and compromise on these issues when you have people start to think this way on, on different sides. And with every day, the stakes seem to get higher and... Every time there is a confrontation, it seems to escalate. This week there was, if you, not, not mainstream media won't necessarily report it, but if you pay attention to other media on the internet, you see that there's violence erupting. People are getting hurt, rocks are being thrown, people are bleeding. And so the more this goes on, the more you have a game of chicken that's developing. The ante gets higher, the ante gets higher, the ante gets higher, it gets higher. And at some point, it just snaps. Now, you might think I'm crazy for this. I'm not even going to explain why I think this, because I believe it's beyond the purview of the sermon. But I think things in this country are escalating quicker than they are in the United States. But I'm not going to explain why I think that. I'll do that another time. It's, not, it's, it's neither here nor there. But either way, I'm just trying to say that I think this sermon is relevant. Because when and if they do erupt, and certainly there is a collision course that's going on, eventually things erupt. If you have a marriage whereby the husband and the wife are completely on different pages, and, 
and one thinks the other's evil and the other thinks the other's evil. You're evil, you're evil, you're evil, you're evil. And this goes on for years. Eventually it blows up. And so eventually it blows up. And so if it does erupt, and I believe it will without a massive amount of repentance in this country, you as an individual will be called to pick a side. You will be, there will be forces at play to suck you in if things erupt and the chips are down. And what this sermon is designed to do is to help you evaluate the situation on the basis of God's law should such a thing occur. How do you evaluate such a situation if this was to take place? And, and anyone who's familiar with human history and anyone who understands human nature thinks, should understand that this is, in any day and age, is a real possibility, but especially in a day and age where you have this level of depravity and evil on full display and corruption on full display. And there are times when the sixth commandment necessitates civil war, and there are times when the sixth commandment necessitates that you pick a side. And so I'm going to try and offer you some principles today to help you think through these things. Christians have been thinking these things through for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so what I'm articulating today is in part known as Protestant resistance theory. But it goes, it's from before the time of the Protestant Reformation, but it has been called Protestant resistance theory. And today I'm going to build on last week. I'm going to look at, I'm going to start by talking about preserving life by civil war and what that means and how you get to that type of thinking. Then I'm going to talk about what tyranny is. Then I'm going to give you historical examples of how this has been applied. And then I'm going to give you scriptural justification for civil war. Why is this scriptural? Okay, and in this, I'm not arguing that war is an exception to the Sixth Commandment. What I am arguing is that sometimes the Sixth Commandment demands it. And there are times when an unwillingness to employ violence is actually a sin against the Sixth Commandment because that means you're unwilling to preserve and protect human life. And implicit in the commandment, do not kill, is the commandment, the opposite of the prohibition is the commandment to do what you can to preserve human life. So let's first look at preserving human life by civil war. Preserving life by civil war. A God-sanctioned civil war assumes a few things. It, ex- it assumes independence of, three bran- of the branches of government. So it assumes that the executive branch is independent of the legislature, which is independent of the judiciary. So in our case, the executive branch of government is the monarchy. And then you have the legislature, which would be the parliament. And then you would have our Queen's Park, could be another legislature. And even within the legislative branches of our government, you have a higher and lower chamber, which operate independently. So the Senate is independent of the House of Commons, okay? So these are independent branches of government that function independently of one another. And then not only do you assume the independence of the branches of government, but you assume the independence of the levels of government. (coughs) Excuse me. So... The federal government is independent of the provincial government, is independent of the municipal government. You have three levels of government that each operate independently. They're independent jurisdictions. So you have branches of government, executive, legislator, judiciary, that operate independently. Then you have levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal, and maybe even others that operate independently. And within the legislative branch, at least federally, you also have two distinct branches, which is the Senate and the House of Commons. All of these are independent. They function independently. And when one branch or level of government becomes tyrannical, the Sixth Commandment requires that the other branches or levels of government resist that tyranny. I'll explain how this plays out in Scripture. But 
I'll give you an example, a hypothetical situation of where this would be justified. Hypothetically speaking, assuming all the levels of government and all the branches of government are to operate independently, which in theory they're supposed to. But let's look at a hypothetical scenario. Let's say Queen's Park in Toronto, the provincial legislature became tyrannical. I know that's hard to imagine, but let's say they did. And, and let's say that the judiciary, this is even more difficult to imagine, let's say the judiciary would not intervene. Okay, so Queen's Park becomes tyrannical, and the judiciary will not intervene on the matter. In fact, the judiciary just rubber stamps Queen's Park's decisions, tyrannical decisions. In which case, hypothetically speaking, this is very hard to imagine, seriously now, the regional municipality of Waterloo says, we will resist and protect our citizens from Queen's Park. Okay. Which they would be justified, and not only justified, but required by God to do. And Queen's Park calls the Ontario Provincial Police and the National Guard to enforce martial law in Waterloo to gain compliance of the regional municipality of Waterloo. And then the re regional municipality of Waterloo says, we will continue to resist, and they employ their police force to resist, and they call their citizens to arms to resist these impositions from the provincial government. See, this is a war of resistance. It's a defensive war, just like I talked about last week. This hypothetical situation is the regional municipality of Waterloo pooling together to resist an external tyranny coming from another level of government, which in this case, hypothetically speaking, would be Queen's Park, with the judiciary refusing to intervene and rubber stamping the tyranny. That's a hypothetical situation, but this is what I mean when I say you need to understand that every level of government must operate independently and every branch of government must operate independently. And so if you have all these independent branches and levels of government and one or two or three or four start to play the tyrant, then it is upon one or two or three or four of the other branches of government to interpose and say, no, not under my jurisdiction. That's what it is. That's a hypothetical situation where civil war would not only be justified, but would become a duty. When one level or branch of government becomes the rallying point to defensively repel tyranny of another level or branch of government, that's when you have civil war. When one level or branch of government puts on a defensive posture against an aggressor, another branch of government, or another level of government, that's when you have a justified civil war. I just gave you an example. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to define tyranny, and then I'm going to give some historical examples of how this has played out, and then I'm going to give scriptural justification for civil war. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to define tyranny... I'm going to give historical examples of justified civil war, and then I'm going to give scriptural justification. But we need to assume that every branch and level of government is operating and has been decreed by God to operate independently of the other branches. Up until this point in our history, the reason that all levels of government have pretty well been in lockstep have, because, have been because there has been an assumption of universal justice operating within each level of government. You haven't needed to have a level of government take a defensive position against another level of government. So if there is a universal principle of justice, namely God's law, that's being played out and everyone's assuming it, then you have peace. But the minute one or two or three or four levels or branches of government step outside of God's law, then it is upon the other branches or levels of government to interpose, and that's when the peace breaks down because one or two or three or four levels or branches of government has disrupted the peace, and it's upon the other levels or branches of government to intervene and stop the disruption of peace. I hope you understand. But let's define tyranny. Tyranny defined and I'll look at scripture to do this. Tyranny defined. When the government uses its sword 
to punish good and protect evil. And the government uses its sword to punish good and protect evil. So we're going to look at Romans 13. Funny how many people use Romans 13 for many different things, but really it's, it really should be used rightly, which is to define in some sense the role of the state. But tyranny is when the government uses its sword to punish good and protect evil. So Romans 13 verses 2 and 4 says, 2 to 4 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath and wrongdoing. And so Romans 13 defines the role of the state. And it defines the role of the magistrate as the protector of good and the terrorizer of evil. And when that's switched so that the magistrate becomes the terrorizer of good and the protector of evil, then you have tyranny. Then you have tyranny. And so, so you need this objective standard of good and evil to understand what tyranny is. You need God's word. Ten commandments. And so when, when the magistrate starts to punish people who obey the Ten Commandments for obeying the Ten Commandments and then starts to protect people who disobey the Ten Commandments, then you have tyranny. And when you have tyranny, that's when it's the job of one level or one branch or several levels or several branches of government to stand up and take a defensive posture against what's going on. Now, I'm going to look at a couple more Bible verses here to hopefully point this out a little more thoroughly. But Revelation 13, I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. Verses 15 and 17 says, speaking of the beast, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. And so the beast puts a mark on the forehead, the beast puts a mark on the right hand, and that is in reference to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today you shall put on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to their children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and be as frontlets between your eyes. And that's right after the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. And so God says you're to put them on your forehead, right here, Ten Commandments, and on your hand. Control your thinking, control your actions. And then what's the beast do? In Revelation 13, he puts his mark on your forehead, and he puts his mark on, your, on his hands, on your hand, right hand. So what's the beast trying to do? The beast is trying to control your mind and control your actions and subvert the law, law of God that's supposed to control your mind and control your actions. And so that's tyranny. That's beastly. Tyranny is when the government uses its sword to punish good and protect evil. The, a wonderful book on this subject written by a French Huguenot. Um, he didn't use his real name because he he didn't want to get on a government watch list, was uh, Vindici Contra Tyrannos, and it was written in 1579, and he says this of tyranny. He says, the prince who applied himself to nothing but his peculiar profits and pleasures, he seeks himself, who condemns and perverts all laws, who uses his subjects more cruelly than the barbarous enemy would do, he may truly and really be called a tyrant. And that those who in this manner govern their kingdoms are more properly unjust pillagers and freebooters than lawful governors. In other words, when you get to the place, and they're right, when you get to the place where the government is subverting the law of God so that they're punishing good and protecting evil, now what you're being governed by is not a legitimate government, but you're being governed by pirates. It's basically a pirate ship's taken over the state. And you're being governed by bootleggers, pirates, and a mafia that operates under the pseudonym government. 
John Calvin said, For earthly princes lay aside their power when they rise up against God, and one unworthy to be reckoned among the number of mankind, we ought rather to spit upon their heads than to obey them. So what's tyranny? Well, tyranny is when a government replaces God's law with its own law, you have tyranny. When a government uses the sword to protect evil and punish good, you have tyranny. And that's what justifies civil war. When a government uses its sword to protect evil and punish good, you have tyranny. And that's what justifies civil war. Now, let me give some historical examples of this. Give some historical examples of this. And remember, as I'm talking about this, I'm assuming three branches are the various branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary are to operate independently. And they do in each one of these cases. And I'm assuming the independence of the levels of government, federal, municipal, and, and provincial operate independently. And that's the case in, in each one of these instances that I'm gonna lay out. But I'll give you five instances really quickly. Some of them I've talked about in the past. Five instances of justified civil war, and we'll see this play out. One level or branch of government plays the tyrant, and another level or branch of government intercedes on a defensive posture to protect the people. So in 1215, King John was abusing the people with rapacious taxation and the confiscation of property and attempts to control the church. The barons and clergymen of England hunted him down and forced him to cease and desist with the Magna Carta. And then by doing so, he gave up his powers, declared the independence of the church, and stopped the rapacious taxation policy and the confiscation of property. And this was done by the interposition of the barons, so functioning as some type of parliament, in 1215, a nascent parliamentary system, and the clergymen. And they hunted him down and they forced him to relinquish this. Essentially a gunpoint. That was 1215. In 1548, the second generation after the Protestant Reformation began under Martin Luther, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V attempted to return the church from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism by force of the sword. So he went around, he told all the churches, you're no longer Protestant, you're now gonna be Roman Catholic. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor did. All of Germany capitulated, except for one city, Magdeburg. One city. The city of Magdeburg entered into defensive civil war against the Holy Roman Empire. And after two years of armed resistance, the empire backed off and historians agree that had Magburg not resisted, the Reformation would have died. So you and I today are recipients of the gospel message because one city in Germany decided to defensively resist and engage in justified civil war against the Holy Roman Empire. Imagine that. Every city capitulates to the empire but one little city, Magburg. And they take a defensive posture, and they say, we will not comply. And they, take it, and they protect their people, they protect their churches, and after two years, the empire backs down and relinquishes its stranglehold on the people. In 1642, the English king, Charles I, abused the people by rapacious taxation, meddling with the church, and abusing his emergency powers. Parliament stood up and defended the English people and the English church from the king, went to war against the king, won against the king, and beheaded the king in the English Civil War. What were they doing? You had one branch of government, the executive, abusing the people with rapacious taxation, meddling with the church, abusing his, his emergency powers. You have another branch of government, the parliament, saying, no, you will not. Civil war breaks out, and parliament wins, and the English liberties are preserved. 1642. 
1688, the English king James II abused the people and meddled with the church. Various lords and clergymen invited the, the Dutch prince, William of Orange, to invade and depose the king, which he did, and he restored the rights of the people. Again, that was a bloodless revolution. There was no need for armed conflict because once the Dutch prince got across the, the English Channel and the king realized what was going on, he knew that he better wave the white flag because his goose was cooked. But they were ready to fight. This might be a little more controversial, but it's worth stating anyway. 1776. 1776. The, Brit the British Parliament was abusing the American colonies with taxation, and there was a real fear on the part of the American churches that the British Parliament and the British government was about to impose a system of bishops to control the churches in America. The colonial government resisted with the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War. Now, some people will say, how can you say that that's a justified war as a Canadian? From our side of things. The reality is, is that there were American or there were English clergymen in the Anglican Church in England during the Revolutionary War who were preaching that the Americans were right to resist this British imposition. There was a great stream of thought within English Parliament on the other side of the Atlantic and within the English churches saying that the Americans are right and that the British government is wrong in what it's doing. Why? Because of this long-standing doctrine of resistance, which is what the Americans were doing. The American patriots stood on the shoulders of the English patriots who defended their rights in the English Civil War, so much so that the English clergymen in England, along with other English politicians, stood shoulder to shoulder ideologically with the American patriots. So there's five historical examples of civil war where a lesser magistrate rallies the people to defend against a higher magistrate. Going back to Vindici Contra Tyrannos, the Huguenot book written with a, pseudonymously. The author didn't include his real name because he didn't want on the government watch list. They said, it said, and if the tyranny has gotten such a sure footing as there is no other means but to remove him, then it is lawful for them to call the people to arms. Which is what happened in each five of those instances, and those are but a few. Now, what you need to understand about what I'm, what I'm advocating for and what I'm teaching here when it comes to Protestant resistance theory is what it's called officially in theological circles is this is not mob rule chaos. I hope you see that. This is not mob rule chaos. This is not the mob rule like you saw in the bloody French Revolution where the streets were flowing with blood. This is not the mob rule that you saw in the bloody Russian Revolution. That's not what this is at all. This is a thoughtful, defensive resistance organized around at least one level or branch of government against tyranny. So the, the example... Um, I, could, I could give would be the war in 1548 that I talked about in Magburg, Germany, where you had the Holy Roman Empire imposing on the city of Magburg, and the city of Magburg resisted. And they repelled the Holy Roman Empire. At the end of that war, the citizens of Magburg, although they won the war, were still under the same government that they were before the war. What do you mean? Well, they were under the government of their city. They were under the government of Magburg. And so the municipality of Magburg resisted the Holy Roman Empire, and the people never went to another government. They stayed under that same government. And so my point is, is that Protestant resistance theory is it's derived from the pages of Scripture is not mob rule chaos like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. It is thoughtful, defensive resistance organized around at least one level or branch of government against tyranny of another branch or level of government, which would be the hypothetical example I gave you early on about what would happen if the Waterloo region took a defensive posture against Queen's Park. Hypothetical example. So that's what 
this is. You're, you're taking the principles of, of just war that I talked about last week and you're applying them to a national level. A national level. And this is all good and great, you say, and, and I've, I hope I've taught you by now. You should be asking, well, what does the Bible say about this? I'm, that's great, Protestant resistance theory. What does the Bible say, though? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let's talk about scriptural justification for Protestant resistance theory. How can you even get to this point of thinking? Romans 13, verses 2 and 4 is where we will turn to begin with. Now, pay attention to how, to what the duty of the magistrate is in Romans 13 and 2 and 4. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Whoa, what's the role of the government? To punish the evil and protect the good. So what if the evil is another government, even in your same country, moving in to destroy the good in your own city or your own province or your own region? Then the duty of the municipal or provincial or of the courts or of the military or of the police or whatever branch or level of government it is, the duty of them is to uphold Romans 13, not to fall into lockstep of the other governments which are doing evil, but instead to to uphold their God-given responsibility, which is to protect the good from the evil and be a terror to the evil. And so what I'm submitting to you is that what I, is this Protestant resistant theory, this whole idea of civil war and justified civil war is nothing more than various levels of government obeying Romans 13. Romans 13 says, punish the evil, protect the good. One government is being evil, so what's the job of the other government? Punish them and protect the people. That's the job. So this is grounded in Scripture. And there's multiple examples of this in Scripture that God himself has blessed. I'll give you a few examples. I'll just give you a couple examples here. One of them would be King Saul. He once threatened to unjustly kill his son Jonathan. King Saul did. And the army that was under King Saul resisted. And this is what 1 Samuel 14, verse 44 through 45 says. And Saul said, God do to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. So he's going to kill his son, Jonathan, unjustly. And what does the army that answers to King Saul say? Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that, the, so that he did not die. The Magburg Confession, which was written by the leaders of the city of Magburg in uh, the war between Magburg and the Holy Roman Empire, they commented on this passage and they said of this army that said they would defend King John, or Jonathan from King Saul. He said they either defended him by force or certainly were ready to defend him by force and that not without just reason. So the army interposed and said to the king, we will not comply. Now, it, it could be called a coup, but it was a justified coup. Because the king was operating unjustly, and so the army said, no, our God-given duty is to protect the good and punish the evil. You, Mr. King, are being evil. Jonathan is good. We will protect him, and we will punish you. Saul backed off. The war was over. Here's another example in the Bible. 1 Kings 15, King Asa was a righteous king. 1 Kings 15, it says of King Asa, Verse 11, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. Verse 12, what is the, some of the good things he did? Well, he put away the milk, milk cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols from his father. And, made, and what's another thing that King Asa did that was good? In verse 13, 
He removed Maaka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it in the brook Kidron. So Asa's mother was queen. And she was queen before Asa was king. And one of the first orders of business that Asa did when he was anointed king was depose his own mother because she was an evil queen. And he didn't just depose his own mother. He took the pictures of his mother and he burnt them. And this is celebrated by God in 1 Kings 15. Why? Because he interposed on behalf of the people. This was a justified civil war. Another one would be 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. The prophet Elisha anointed Jehu as king of Israel. And his first order of business was to assassinate the sitting king, King Joram of Israel, then assassinate Queen Jezebel, and then assassinate all of Ahab's descendants, and then assassinate the prophets of Baal. So he's anointed king. It's almost like he's anointed king in some back alley somewhere by Elisha because there's a reigning king. He's anointed king. First order of business is he kills the sitting king, King Joram of Israel. Then he kills the queen mother, Jezebel. And then he kills all the descendants of the queen mother, Jezebel. And then he kills all the false prophets. And then in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, it says... And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So God rewards him for it. So I'm not just pulling this stuff out of a theology textbook. It's been well thought out and it's grounded in Scripture. It's first of all grounded in Romans chapter 13 and then beyond that, it's grounded in multiple examples of this going on and then God putting his stamp and seal of approval on it in the Old Testament. A justified civil war occurs when a civil magistrate takes a principled stand against another civil magistrate to defend the people from tyranny. That is a justified civil war. One civil magistrate organizes the people against the tyrant. This is not mob rule. But this is an organized government resistance against the government. And so some of you, I got, and this is, and so what's trying to be saying here is you're trying to uphold the principles that are taught in Scripture so that the government itself, it becomes the protector against another government that is the destroyer. The government itself becomes the protector against another government within the same nation that is the destroyer. And this is all rooted in the sixth commandment because the sixth commandment tells us that we shall not kill and implicit in that commandment is that we shall defend human life and the natural rights of the people. And when one level of government disturbs the peace of the people by operating as a tyrant, the other levels of the government are not just permitted to but have a duty to resist. And we are very in very tumultuous times. I don't know if you've realized that yet, but we are. It's very easy just to kind of go on and, and be happy because your own life is comfortable. But when you just take a high-level view of what's going on right now, we are in tumultuous times. In 2019, I came, I preached on Judges 19, and I said that the outcome of these terrible actions depravity that we're seeing in high places, the perversion that's being paraded before us will lead to violence and it'll spill into the streets and likely to civil war if there's no repentance, certainly violence though. And then the political excuse which came after that, COVID-19 came after that, the political excuse during COVID-19, as as I, and I communicated by the way with, I communicated with members of parliament during that time, I communicated with members of provincial parliament during that time, I communicated with municipal politicians during that time. I communicated with members of the police force during that time. And the excuse that came from every one of them typically 
was, well, we're just doing what Queens Park tells us to do. We're just doing what the premier tells us to do, what the public health people tell us to do. That was always what they would, they would deflect. They would point it back to somebody else. And what I'm trying to teach you today is that the scriptures demand that the individuals and that the branches of government and the levels of government operate independently of each other to do what? To protect the good and punish the evil so that all are without excuse. Every one of them. There is no, oh, well, someone just told me to do it because the word of God assumes that every individual is a moral agent. But the way that many are operating today is they think they're just a moral blob. We just go along with the blob. Well, the scriptures assure and demand that individuals will be held to account and branches of government will be held to account. And when one level of government or one person in government plays the tyrant, it's the responsibility of other levels or other persons in government to stand in the gap and protect the people if the call comes and then call the people to defend themselves and assist in the effort. That's the job. Defend their freedom and their families. And if it ever comes to that, in our day and age, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did, all persons in government will be held to account if they do not stand in the gap. There will be no excuses. And it will be upon the people to stand by any government that says they are ready to stand in the gap and defend the people. It will be upon the people to do so. It will be our responsibility to do so. If God were to decide to raise up a just magistrate, and that just magistrate were to say, I will defend you. This is wrong, and I will protect the good. Then it will be upon the people to rally to him, or to rally to that branch of government, and to have a groundswell to resist defensively. Why is it, would it be our duty? And why would it be another level or branches of government's duty to do so? Because that is how you uphold the sixth commandment. Because a government that disturbs the peace is a government in violation of the sixth commandment. And then it is upon other levels or branches of government to restore the peace through defensive postures. And so this is to give you a frame of reference and a frame of thought that's been thought through many years, for hundreds and thousands of years, by Christians, and how to think through strange times like this, and to mentally process things if, er if it ever gets to that, so that we can think through it on a clear basis and properly uphold the Word of God. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. And we pray that so it doesn't have to come to this, that you would send revival to this country, that your spirit would be poured out upon your people, and you would call this land to repentance, and that you would restore the peace of this land. In Christ's name, amen.